Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hi, I'm Scott Chesworth, and welcome to the Ancient World Rediscovery. Episode R10, The Bull and the Autumn. The clay fragments came in hard and fast, each impact punctuated by a fearsome shout. The woman clearly did not want strangers poking around, even if it was, pretty much, the middle of nowhere. But, of course, if you want curious Europeans to go away, the last thing you should do is pelt them with mysterious inscribed fragments. The year was 1887 A.D., and the place was the mound of Tel El Amarna, some 225 miles south of Cairo. The mound was known to hold the remains of the royal city of Akhenaten, capital of the nonconformist pharaoh of the same name. Only briefly occupied during the 14th century B.C., before being abandoned to the desert, kind of like a new kingdom burning man, the ruins weren't expected to hold much of value. The woman had been digging for ancient mud brick, to be used as either fuel or fertilizer, when she'd made a surprising discovery. A chamber filled with hundreds of inscribed clay tablets. Over the following days and weeks, she'd begun bringing the tablets to the local bazaar for sale, which naturally led to the arrival of the curious Europeans and her improvised efforts to drive them off. Fortunately for posterity, the Europeans quickly zeroed in on the importance of the find and snatched up all the tablets floating around the market. They were fairly easy to identify. Why? Well, mainly because they were written not in Egyptian hieroglyphics, but in Akkadian cuneiform, which, combined with their presence at Akhenaten, could really only mean one thing. The woman had stumbled across a cache of international correspondence from the Late Bronze Age. 
As discussed way back in Episode 8, Late Bronze Age rulers were virtual chatterboxes, dashing off one tablet after the other whenever they felt like talking smack, thought they'd been slighted, or especially when they wanted other rulers to send them wives or treasure. They were classy like that. The great kings of the period included those of Egypt, Babylonia, Hatti, Mitanni, and Assyria, with a few others occasionally sprinkled in for good measure. Along with letters to one another, great kings also sent frequent dispatches to their vassals, mainly in the disputed territories of Syria and Canaan. These communiques were constantly flowing, and the lingua franca of the day was Akkadian cuneiform. Around 380 such tablets were eventually recovered from Tel el Amarna. The Amarna letters, as they were later dubbed, cover a period of between 15 and 30 years. It's still a bit hard to nail down dating from the late reign of Amenhotep III through the entire reign of Akhenaten. They even extend into the very early reign of everyone's favorite boy king, Tutankhamun. The letters were a huge treasure trove of historical knowledge, and also helped sort out a few contemporary theories. One of the most important was about the Hittites. Like the Assyrians, the Hittites were already known from the Bible, being mentioned as far back as Genesis and given equal standing to the Egyptians in 2 Kings 7. But it wasn't until 1879 that a British Assyriologist named Archibald Sace proposed linking the Hittites to a non-Egyptian hieroglyphic script found in Syrian stonework in Hamath, Aleppo, and Carchemish. In 1893, six years after the discovery of the Amarna letters, a French archaeologist named Ernest Chantre began excavating some ruins near the central Turkish village of Bogazkoy. Chantre soon turned up several inscribed clay tablets, written in Akkadian cuneiform but in an unknown language. So, in other words, they could be translated, but the words were meaningless. The interesting part was the connection to the Amarna letters. While the vast majority of the letters were written in the Akkadian language, a handful were written in this same unknown language. In 1906, the German archaeologist Hugo Winkler unearthed a massive archive of tens of thousands of cuneiform tablets at Bogazkoy. While most were in this same mysterious language, a few were written in Akkadian. These tablets identified Bogazkoy as the Hittite capital of Hattusas, making the language of the other tablets the Hittite language. Actually, the Luwian language, but that's what the Hittites used. It was later learned that this same language could be written in either hieroglyphics or cuneiform, which confirms Sace's earlier links to the ancient Syrian stonework. The Hittites first burst onto the scene back in 1595 BC when their king, Mersili I, led his army south on a mission of conquest. 
His first victim was the Syrian kingdom of Yom Kad and its capital of Aleppo. But that was just a warm-up. Soon the Hittites and their fearsome two-wheeled chariots were in front of the gates of Babylon, 1,200 miles from their starting point of Hattusas. In short order, they sacked the city, inadvertently putting an end to the ruling Amorite dynasty and paving the way for a Kassite takeover. Then, the Hittites waved a hearty goodbye to Mesopotamia and headed back north. Their capital, Hattusas, had been founded as early as 2000 BC. It started out as a small settlement atop a high defensive ridge, located in a large loop of the Mahashantaya River. A few centuries after its foundation, Assyrian traders established an outpost at the site, bringing with them knowledge of cuneiform writing. This first iteration of the city was soon sacked by the neighboring Kusarans. But the site was too strategic to leave abandoned for long, and soon a new Hittite ruling dynasty set up shop. The founder of this dynasty gave himself the name Hattusili, basically the man from Hattusas. His extended family would rule through the fall of the Hittite Empire, and even a bit beyond. But things didn't exactly get off to a smooth start. The fearsome Gazga tribe, living along the south shore of the Black Sea, were a constant threat, and the Hittite capital had to be moved three times before finally returning to Hattusas. The new royal city covered over a square mile, with numerous residences, administrative buildings, and temples. It was surrounded by a massive wall, erected in the late 14th century BC by the great king Supaluliuma I. The high defensive ridge that had held the original settlement was converted into the royal citadel. Gateways were covered with decorative stone reliefs of warriors, lions, and sphinxes, an architectural style that would later be adopted by the Neo-Assyrians. Despite the early dust-up with the Babylonians, the Hittites would spend most of their time fighting the Hurrians, then the Egyptians, over control of the Levant. Hattusas would eventually fall to the Phrygians during the chaos of the Bronze Age collapse. But, as we've heard many times now, burning, raising, and leveling a city, while horribly unpleasant for those on the ground, can be a real boon for later historians. Just like at Nineveh and the nearby site of Mari in Syria, the rapid destruction and abandonment of Atusas left behind a virtual time capsule, including, as already mentioned, tens of thousands of inscribed baked clay tablets. The most famous tablet from Hattusas is a peace treaty, drawn up between the Hittites and the Egyptians after the 1259 BC Battle of Kadesh. A copy of this international treaty, one of the first in recorded history, is on permanent display at the United Nations in New York. The Hittite records are also interesting for relating a different version of the battle from that found in Egyptian sources. 
in the reliefs from numerous Egyptian temples, particularly Abu Simbel, Ramesses the Great portrayed the Battle of Kadesh as an overwhelming victory for Egyptian arms. The Hittites, not so much and the fact that they held on to Kadesh after the battle hints that their version may be closer to the truth. Only a few years before the discovery of the Hittite archive, another ancient site had yielded its own motherlode. In 1900 AD, the palace complex of Knossos, on the Greek island of Crete, was first excavated by the British archaeologist Arthur Evans. The magnificent art and architecture found at the site prompted Evans to propose that Mycenaean Greece hadn't been dominated from the mainland, as Schliemann's finds had suggested, but in fact had been ruled from Crete. Evans then went even further and proposed that the civilization found at Knossos, dubbed Minoan after the mythical King Minos, wasn't Greek at all, but of an entirely different origin. His main evidence was baked clay tablets unearthed at the site. The tablets contained an unknown script, named Linear B, which didn't appear to have any relationship to later Greek writing. Evans's chief opponent in this view was the American archaeologist Carl Blagan. As mentioned a few episodes back, Blagan excavated at Hisarlik during the 1930s and favored Troy 7A as Homer's Troy. Blagan was convinced that Bronze Age Greece had been dominated by Mycenae, just like Homer had said and that the written script found in Crete must have also been used on the mainland. It was his search for more Linear B tablets that took Blagan to Pylos in 1939. His hope was to find the palace of the legendary King Nestor, Agamemnon's ally in the Iliad. Directed by locals to a hill overlooking the sea, Blagan soon began his excavations. On the very first day, he struck pay dirt, finding a cache of hundreds of clay tablets in the Linear B script. The palace he uncovered, untouched since the 13th century BC, was also similar in design to that of Knossos. But the question remained, which culture had dominated which? The answer would have to wait for the decipherment of Linear B, but on the plus side, the combined records from Knossos and Pylos now gave would-be translators a fighting chance. Just over a decade later, in 1952, a 30-year-old British architect and linguist named Michael Ventress announced that his team, including World War II codebreaker John Chadwick, had successfully deciphered the Linear B script. Their conclusion was that, even though it didn't resemble it on the surface, Linear B was an early form of Greek. As Ventress put it, a difficult and archaic Greek, written in a rather abbreviated form, but Greek nevertheless. The implication soon universally adopted, was that Crete had been conquered by the mainland Greeks. 
No matter how amazing the Palace of Knossos was, Crete hadn't been the hub of the late Bronze Age Aegean, but just another constituent. But what about earlier? The excavations at Knossos and other Cretan sites soon progressed beyond the layers associated with the Mycenaean conquest into an older and deeper civilization. Evans had also uncovered a second unknown script, named Linear A, whose use appeared limited to sites in Crete. To add to the mystery, Blagan's excavations at Corinth in the 1920s established that early Cretan civilization appeared to be distinct from, and more advanced than, contemporary Helladic sites in mainland Greece. So, what did all this mean? Well, basically, it meant that Evans wasn't entirely wrong. The Aegean had once been dominated by the island of Crete, but centuries before, the Mycenaean Greeks came on the scene. Also, the domination had been strictly commercial, not military. All of which takes us back to one of my favorite ancient civilizations, the Minoans. I first discussed the Minoans way back in episode 2. Lively, exuberant, seafaring traders who made great wine, even better art, and passed their free time jumping over bulls? I mean seriously, what is not to love? As if that weren't enough, they also gave women powerful roles in their society, and despite the fact that they made the best bronze swords in the Aegean, never practiced warfare either on others or among themselves. Back in the day, the day being between around 2000 and 1600 BC, the Minoans traded everywhere. Egypt, Greece, Cyprus, Syria, Anatolia, you name it. They also planted colonies most prominently on the neighboring island of Thera. And yeah, about Thera. While a few archaeologists had poked around Thera over the years, serious investigations began in 1967 under Spiridon Marinatos. Potsherds had pointed him to a site near the island's southern tip, called Akrotiri, and it didn't take long for his efforts to pay off. What Marinatos found was nothing less than an entire Minoan city, almost perfectly preserved beneath a 40-foot-thick layer of volcanic dust. This discovery provided further evidence for two major theories. The first regarded the high level of Minoan culture, instantly apparent in Akrotiri's art, architecture, and colonial nature. The second theory regarded how Minoan civilization had met its end. Thera was, and still is, highly volcanic. The island's current crescent shape is no accident. Around 1627 BC, the central volcano of Thera just exploded. It's impossible to wrap your head around the size of the eruption. It was simply unbelievably enormous around 60 cubic kilometers of material, three-quarters of the island's entire mass suddenly blasted into the atmosphere. Akrotiri was instantly entombed in a layer of pumice, 
making it essentially a Minoan Pompeii. And nearby islands, including Minoan Crete, were likely devastated by the resulting tsunami. It was the beginning of the end of Minoan civilization. And their apparent pacifism probably did them little good when the warlike Mycenaean Greeks came calling. Luckily for us, the Mycenaeans loved Minoan art and quickly incorporated it into their own artistic tradition. And now we come to the last and most famous of our rediscoveries. Five short years after the recovery of the Amarna letters, a young Englishman arrived at Akhenaten. His name was Howard Carter, and though he was only 17, he was already known for his expertise in copying tomb decorations. This skill had been nurtured by his father, who was himself a trained artist. After a year working with the archaeological team at Akhenaten, Carter moved on to Deir el-Bahari, where he spent much of the next five years recording the reliefs from the mortuary temple of Queen Hatshepsut. Soon after that, Carter was off to Thebes, where he supervised a number of local excavations. During his time there, he unearthed the tombs of the New Kingdom pharaohs Thutmose I and Thutmose III, both of which had been looted long before. In 1907, Carter was hired by the Earl of Carnarvon to explore the Valley of the Kings, on the west bank of the Nile opposite Thebes. Carter spent the next seven years excavating in the area, before being interrupted by the outbreak of World War I. At the war's conclusion, Carter picked up where he left off, but his lack of significant fines prompted his benefactor, Lord Carnarvon, to threaten to cut off funding at the end of the 22 season. On November 4th, Carter's workmen discovered steps leading down to a sealed doorway possibly the entrance to an undiscovered tomb. Carter immediately wired Lord Carnarvon, who arrived in Thebes a few weeks later. In the presence of his patron, Carter made a small hole in the top of the doorway and peered inside. Candlelight reflected off objects of ebony and gold, and as his eyes adjusted, Carter made out a second sealed doorway in the interior. Carnarvon asked, Can you see anything? To which Carter famously replied, Yes, wonderful things. The fabulous wealth in the antechamber alone was mind-boggling. I'm not even going to try to catalog it all. But the real treasure lay beyond the second doorway. Inside the burial chamber... Nested within an outer red quartzite sarcophagus, then a middle wood sarcophagus overlaid with beaten gold, lay the inner solid gold coffin of the New Kingdom pharaoh Tutankhamun. Tutankhamun had been born in Akhenaten to Akhenaten, and had unsurprisingly been named Tutankhaten by his notoriously nonconformist father. Akhenaten, the pharaoh, had moved to Akhenaten, the city, in a bid to break the power of the priesthood of Amun, which was centered in Thebes. 
The new religion he founded there, focused on the sun disk or Aten, didn't require a priesthood, since Akhenaten was the only person who could commune with the Aten, which was, you know, pretty convenient. When Akhenaten died, around 1334 BC, he was briefly succeeded by his son Smenkakare, then by one of Egypt's very few female mystery pharaohs, a queen named Nefer-Neferuaten, before the throne finally passed down to Tutankhaten. The turbulence of the times, and the effort by later dynasties to erase the memory of the Amarna period, resulted in a lack of detailed records. But we are pretty sure that the new king, aged nine or ten, remained firmly under the control of his senior advisors, the aged vizier Ai and the ambitious general Horemheb. Two years into his reign, and doubtless at their instigation, Tutankhaten changed his name to Tutankhamun, restored the traditional privileges of the Amun priesthood, and returned the Egyptian capital to Thebes, basically doing a reset back to the era of his grandfather, Amenhotep III. The remainder of Tutankhamun's reign was mainly noted, to the extent it was noted at all, for building projects in Thebes and Karnak, and an attempt to strengthen diplomatic relations with neighboring kingdoms. Then, around the age of 18 or 19, he died. So, what killed him? Well, depending on who you ask nowadays, it was either an infection from a broken leg, genetic defects as a result of inbreeding, a combination of malaria and type 2 Kohler disease, sickle cell disease, Marfan syndrome, Froelich syndrome, Kleinfelter syndrome, androgen insensitivity syndrome, aromatase excess syndrome, Antley-Bixler syndrome, or possibly, you know, one of its variants. They were able to rule out death by hippopotamus, poison, or blunt force trauma. I personally believe that Livia did it. Either way, the young pharaoh's premature death led to his burial in a smaller-than-expected tomb probably the one intended for his vizier I. This fact, along with the connection to his heretical father and his own brief and unremarkable reign, quickly relegated Tutankhamun to obscurity and oblivion, which, while not doing much for his reputation, did help folks forget that he'd been buried there which is probably the main reason his tomb sat around for over 3,000 years without being disturbed. Ironically, Carter's successful excavations turned this virtually forgotten boy king into the most famous Egyptian pharaoh of all time. I mean, even Ramesses II never got Steve Martin to write a song about him. The treasures in Tutankhamun's tomb showed the vast wealth available to even minor pharaohs of the New Kingdom, and his burial artifacts have pretty much been touring the world ever since. So that's it. And now for the good news and bad news. The bad news is that I'll be ending rediscovery with this episode. 
although I wouldn't really call it bad news since I've pretty much covered what I wanted to and had a lot of fun researching and producing the series. But on to the good news. As of a few weeks ago, I had no definite future podcasting plans and was considering dropping back to just doing occasional one-off episodes. But then, just when I least expected it, I got hit by what I think is an amazing idea. It pulls together a number of threads that have been bouncing around in my head for a long time now, and I'm officially incredibly, extremely excited about the concept. The only question is whether I can pull it off. I'm sure going to try. So, for the moment, I need to ask your indulgence while I take another break to do some research and try to get this new thing off the ground. I'm hoping it'll only take a month, maybe two. But once it starts, I expect it to be a pretty long haul. And, sorry to be cryptic, but that's about all I'm going to say about the series for now. Hopefully, when it comes out, it'll be a pleasant surprise for everyone. So, for now, thanks again for listening. Please stay subscribed, and I'll see you next time on The Ancient World.